today on the University Podcast. What day of the week is it? Philosophy Friday. Philosophy Friday. Here we go. And we are in part two of A Shot of Faith to the Head by Dr. Mitch Stokes. And we've hit uh, chapter 14, 15, and 16, 16 is what we'll cover today. And in this section, he is responding to the objection that science has shown there's no gods. The whole science versus religion debate, that's kind of what uh, last episode, this episode, and uh, the next episode are going to be on before we uh, look at the problem of evil. And Keith, you have a jargon word for us today. Uh, hit us with it. Yeah, so the jargon word is instrumentalism. And so in uh, chapter uh, 15, I believe it is, yeah. uh, he makes comments uh, regarding uh, a kind of a view of science is called instrumentalism. And, and basically the idea behind instrumentalism is that uh, science is an instrument that we use in achieving certain ends and goals, but it doesn't necessarily tell us something true about the essence or nature of reality. So for example, in an kind of in a simplistic understanding, if we need to whack a uh, nail down, um, you know, theoretically be like, oh, grab me a hammer. But if you had a hard piece of wood, it's a sufficient instrument at that point to knock down the nail. And so as you're looking at that piece of wood, it is sufficient for your, it's an instrument for your goals and your ends. And so the instrumentalist view of science, they're willing to say that it may not tell us something true about the essence of reality, just as that piece of wood does not tell you that it's a hammer, um, but it, it does its goal of being a hammer. So in instrumentalism, science is uh, pragmatic or convenient for the goals and purposes you're seeking to achieve, but it, in its end, it may not tell you something about the essence or nature of reality as it really is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, how would a, a Christian maybe encounter instrumentalism in a conversation? So, cause I've never heard of instrumentalism except like if the beat is just the beat and not the lyrics, you know, kind of like in music. Uh, so is, is there a way that we would maybe uh, encounter this in the, in the real world? Yeah. You're, you're going to encounter it in the real world. If, especially if you go presuppositional on somebody and they're a little bit caught off guard, regarding your apologetic, they'll end up saying, well, it works. And so there's a philosophy also called pragmatism. I think it was John Dewey that gave us pragmatism. And he, his view was kind of instrumentalist as well. So, so the place where you're going to end up uh, hearing instrumentalism, the, the, the person you're interacting with doesn't know it's instrumentalism. They're just going to end up saying, well, it works. You know what I mean? So I don't know if science is telling me something true about the nature of reality, but it works. Every time you hear that, the, the kind of the, the the angle that they're coming through is instrumentalism at that point. They don't know it's instrumentalism. They're just kind of appeal to the pragmatism, the pragmatic element. So there's kind of a sense in which instrumentalism is um, intimately tied into the idea of pragmatism and, and kind of more the philosophy of pragmatism is kind of the view of reality. So, so you basically what you're looking forward to is the, the tools around you are instruments to achieving your goals and your ends, um, but it doesn't tell you something about their essences per se. So, okay. gotcha. so yeah, you, you actually, you'll, you'll be surprised. Like, once you learn a term like that, you'll be surprised. You're less like, oh, that person is just really appealing to instrumentalism. And uh, uh, the first I came across it, actually, and I didn't really understand it at the time, but Gordon Clark, if you're familiar with Gordon Clark, I think you just got some Gordon Clark books, didn't you? He kind of attacks science in his book, Philosophy of Science, and he basically wants to argue 
kind of an instrumentalist view that science is good at manipulating reality, but you never really get to know the world because Clark's adamantly anti-empiricism. So he's kind of science doesn't really get you at truth; it just kind of is an instrument to get into the world around you. So uh, it's been 20 years since I read Clark, and hopefully I'm representing him properly because that, that's what I remember it from 20 years ago. So okay, thanks. So that's that's instrumentalism, and uh, really, there's kind of a dominant theme in these three chapters dealing with methodological naturalism, which I think is, was our jargon last week. And so I just want to read again the definition of this because we're going to be talking about it in these chapters. So uh, here's your jargon review. A methodological naturalism is the rule that God may not be related to, uh, referred to in science. Scientists must, as scientists, act as if there is no supernatural realm. And then uh, this would be uh, maybe distinct from philosophical naturalism, which is just the view that there is no supernatural realm at all. So uh, if you're a scientist, methodological naturalism is kind of, uh, maybe you would say it's like the gold standard. You're doing your science without any reference to God. And uh, Mitch is going to basically argue that that's impossible that it cannot be done. And he kind of does just the a no neutrality argument about science. So uh, Keith, what did you make of chapter 14, this, this kind of idea, the chapter is called 100% all natural. Say, you know, is that, is that even possible to do? Yeah, and I like the, I like the section on why is science possible? And it's, it's central, I think to all of our thinking, like, uh, one, like, maybe by analogy, if you take, the current plight in America and the rioting and all that sort of stuff. And when you go to have a uh, racial discussion, um, you can't just have a discussion about Floyd and the cop. There's people want to throw in 400 years of history into that discussion. So we don't, we're not just arriving at a man and a cop where they want to depend on who you're interacting with. They want to arrive there through 400 years of understanding of that event. And so what Stokes, I think points out well is like, in what context does science arise? Science didn't just, it's not like somebody just woke up one day and was like, science, you know what I mean? An apple fell from a tree, Newton's physics. It's, it, these ideas about the nature of reality came over you know, several hundred, even a thousand plus years of the wedding of Greek and Christian philosophy into understanding the nature of reality. And so I like this chapter from the standpoint that many people who do science um, they don't want to think through the assumptions they're making about the nature of reality. They just want to say, well, it, it kind of that instrumentalist idea, it just works. It's just what we do. But they don't realize that it's what they do after several hundred years of philosophy of the wedding of Greek and Christian philosophy on understanding the nature of reality. So I like this section on pages 133 and 134 where he basically lays out why is science possible and he seeks to show that it's in the context of Christianity rather than just a materialism that uh, science makes sense. Yeah, so there's this quote from physicist Paul Davies, and I'll read just an excerpt of it. He says, uh, even the most atheistic scientists accepts as an act of faith, i.e. An, an assumption, the existence of a law-like order in nature that is at least in part comprehensible to us. So science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. And he kind of uh, just proves that there's all these assumptions that uh, are invisible to us now because we take them for granted, right? You, you, you just assume them. And this is where 
unbelieving atheistic science is standing on the Christian, on, on all these kind of assumptions that only can be accounted for with the Christian worldview. And then they're trying to use that now to, to throw the ladder down, climb up the ladder, then throw it down or, you know, yeah. saw off the branch you're sitting on kind of imagery. Yeah. And uh, he also has a really good quote. Uh, I like this quote. If I can steal another one from Thomas Kuhn and Thomas Kuhn's book is a pretty, he wrote a book called the structure of scientific revolutions back in, I don't know if it was the fifties or sixties that he wrote the book. Um, and it's not a full tilt postmodern book to relativize these things, but he a bit more than others uh, began to lay out the idea that science is in fact a paradigm before anomalies arise in a paradigm. And then you have to have this paradigm shift, but even just getting at the nature of having knowledge of the world, he ends up saying the world must also possess quite special characteristics, and we are no closer than we were at the start to knowing what these must be. That problem, what must the world be like in order that man may know it, was not, however, created by this essay. On the contrary, uh, it is old as science itself, and it remains unanswered. So his basic point is, you know, what must the world be like in order for man to know it? He's like, science has not answered that question. And so we do know the world, uh, we are doing our science, um, and yet science itself can't give us an explanation for why that is the case, according to Kuhn. And so I just think the, as we're thinking through this issue, we're interacting with Joe Atheist, who is a quote-unquote scientist, uh, this section's, I think, very helpful in understanding how we arrived at where we are that the atheist just takes for granted rather than accounting uh, and seeking to understand why the world is the way it is. Because even if you, if you go to like, you know, think of going to India and, you know, they have a whole caste system and structure and sacred cows. And so they're not killing and eating cows because they're sacred. You know, so if the trees are magical or mystical and stuff like that, you're not going to be cutting them down and uh, using them naturally. And so if the world's filled with spirits, and even as Christians, we believe in the demonic realm and stuff like that, we don't think the world is really governed. We don't really govern. The world is not governed by a multitude of gods and a multitude of spirits. There's one God that governs the heavens and the earth. And so in a sense, Christianity comes into the world and naturalizes it. And then kind of secularism is a fruit of a post-Christian phenomena. So we come in, we kind of secularize the world around us uh, because we make the trees kind of natural. The grass is kind of natural, even though we have uh, a God governing all things. And then with the, uh, atheist wants to do is take all of that that we did that we came in we naturalize everything and then take God out of it and um, I just think yeah that, that's kind of their their faulty approach to understanding the world yeah and this really sets up the next two chapters on uh, how we get to the evolutionary myth because uh, you need a narrative you need some way of accounting now for how we got here. And so uh, kind of 15 and is it, was there anything in 15 that you wanted to hit? That was kind of the instrumentalism chapter before we get to 16 on, uh, and really diving into evolution. I'm going there now. I, I don't have anything highlighted uh, that stands out. So there's yeah, nothing, nothing particular in 15 um, that I thought was central to our understanding. Okay, so yeah, let's just jump to, to 16, and it's, this chapter is called Evolution Explained, and this is where we get into uh, kind of a critique of evolution. Uh, Keith, have, have you encountered uh, ever a very persuasive argument for evolution? Like, have you ever had, a, had an argument come at you that you thought, oh, that, that actually could be uh, a reasonable uh, way of accounting for how how reality is. Yeah, I think in a so 
I'm not smart enough to say yay or nay to this particularly, but years ago, um, I had a couple of really good meetings at the University of Iowa, and there was a young man there who was, he, he seemed sincere, uh, like totally wrestled with the issue of God, but he was also a biologist, and he sent me some stuff regarding, and, and I'm totally going to butcher this, if you're a science person, excuse me, but basically what he looked at was the idea of common descent, and I can't remember like what the chromosome was or exactly what it was, that let's just say it was broken. And, you know, you have your evolutionary branch in your tree, and here's the branch that we, he argues, we came from, and here's a break in the chromosome that goes all the way back to shortly after this branch, you know what I mean? So it branches off, and then you, what you have is this broken chromosome going all the way back, and so what he wants to point to, what that would point to is the fact that it's in this in all these species, there, that this would be evidence of a common descent between us and everybody before us. And so... Those are the sorts of things that I think some people look at and find persuasive. Uh, the other couple times I've tried to delve into um, primary articles or uh, peer-reviewed articles and journals. Um, if I took a second, I, I probably should have brought it with me, but I don't have it. And, but, um, but basically, they, they still kind of admit uh, in, in certain ways while fully affirming it that um, Darwin's species describes the uh, survival of the fittest without the arrival of the fittest. And so... Um, once, once it's in place, we can describe why things are surviving, but how it arrived here, um, the, the one article I, I remember reading w would still basically say we, we don't have a mechanism to account for that. So, you know, in a little bit I know, because I wanted to try to get the primary resource, that's where I kind of realized, like, I'm just not a scientist, you know what I mean? And I'm never going to be a great biologist at this point in my life, and so I got I to gotta kind of work with what I got. And, um, and so that's so what I've generally discovered is what I do is, and this is, you know, it's kind of funny, this is a little tangential, but I was actually talking to um, uh, Wilson, what's... Uh, 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 Gordon Wilson. Gordon Wilson. I bumped into him in Bootsers, and I was asking him about a guy named Todd Wood, um, or Todd Woods, who is a uh, Christian creationist guy, and he was kind of well-known a couple years ago because he wrote an article uh, to the effect that evolution is not a theory in crisis, and there's evidence for it. And what was interesting is I I was uh, talking to Dr. Wilson about that, and he said, oh, yeah, he was a student of mine at Liberty University. And so, uh, yeah, he's like, yeah, he graduated under me and blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, he knows me because I've, I've actually even emailed Todd because I had some questions for him. He goes, yeah, if you email again, tell him you know me. So, anyway, but he would be a guy who I kind of respect because he, he seems to be um, as objective with the material as, as someone who doesn't know can do with it. And I may have mentioned this on this program, but one of my challenges is when I'm on campus and I hear kids talk about the Bible, something I know well, I'm like, that's simply not what the Bible, you know what I mean? That's, that's not what the scriptures teach. So I'm often hesitant to just say, well, this is what science teaches. You know what I mean? And then assert that because I don't know it well enough. And I don't want some kid who really knows his material to be like, oh man, that guy has no idea what he's talking about. And so, um, so anyway, that's, uh, uh, so, so that would be the best argument, I think, is this idea that uh, there seems to be this, this commonality in all of our, quote-unquote, ancestors that would suggest a continuous pattern from back here to us today. And so the idea of common descent, um, that, something that we would look for in common descent, this is indicative of that. And uh, the kid ended up sending me like 400 articles. He had a, it was weird. He had a whole database that he was building out of. I was like, all right, I'm not going to read 400 journal articles. And uh, yeah. When I when I read them, I realize I I barely know uh, the headway of where they're getting at. So anyway, in, in my head, I would say that's probably the best component that I've seen in my limited knowledge of uh, of biology. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. We've seen also, I don't know if you're familiar with the BioLogos people and the theistic evolution stuff. And I, I remember Tim Keller's name being thrown around with BioLogos. And, uh, I, I, think Jim I, Jordan called, I think Jim Jordan calls him BioLogos. That's another reason I love Jim. Uh, but uh, it, it's funny that it seems like the goalposts get moved when – uh, the, in the like creation evolution debate, because when we're talking about creation, we're talking about something ex nihilo, right? We're talking from how did, how did anything, you know, why is there something instead of nothing? Mm -hmm. And so we're saying, you know, God has eternally existed and then he, he speaks the world into existence. But then when you get in and they want to give you this rival story, right? So th that's our myth. Uh, you know, we believe it's the true myth and then they give the evolutionary myth, but, the evolutionary myth often involves a comet, you know, flying and hitting earth and, and it had, you know, some material on it. And uh, it, so it's like, well, my, I, my first question is, okay, well, wait, well, hold on. Where did the comet come from? Uh -huh. Like th there's suddenly now we're talking, there's, they're using material. And so uh, sometimes I think in the creation evolution debate, uh, we need to, we need to hold the line and, and say, no, like, why is there something? At all, like yeah. where did where did something come from, uh, and and that's the question that I don't think they they have an answer for, and, and that's where you have um, you, you could speak to this. I, I don't know a ton about the kind of philo the philosophy philosophical philosophical history of this, but you have the, the people have just said the world has al always been here, right? Mm -hmm. That that was their answer was if there's no eternal God, then it, then maybe just this earth has been here forever and so so you make the created nature you divinize it basically with with eternality um, and it's funny now uh, uh who's the black guy who does the the science stuff on netflix neil degrasse uh, tyson yeah 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 him and he's so he's such a pedant oh that's, that's <laughs> it's hilarious and uh, uh mitch talks about it here the, the whole multiverse explanation and i feel like that's actually become uh so popular now in movies in culture and i think that neil degrasse tyson may have even posited that uh in one of you know his shows where here, here's the multiverse theory and, and and they present it in such a plausible way like this is this is you know totally a possibility uh, have you run into any multiversers out there uh very rarely you'll get an occasional kid he'll throw it out who probably just got done listening to a Neil deGrasse Tyson lecture or something like that. Then he rolls it out. But for the most part, I feel like they know they're just BSing. You know what I mean? Like it's there. They're, and I, I even made me think of an, I think it was a Babylon B uh, <laughs> article that was like atheist considers every alternative, but God, you know what I mean? So like they're willing to throw the kitchen sink at you. Um, other than accept the idea that, you know, maybe there's a creator. So there's a multiverse and there's aliens. And that was one of the things that's funny is on page 155 to me and reading this chapter. I think last week I shared the story of uh, preaching in Montana and the professor would have me come in and uh, I was talking in her origins, uh, uh, like origins of the universe class, whatever it was. And um, the, and I came in before the aliens, you know what I mean? Like, so my philosophy was more reasonable than aliens, but then you read, you know, you read in the section that he's talking about this guy, um, what's his name? Doyle or Hoyle. What's his first name? Fred Hoyle. And, um, uh, but then he goes on alien terrestrial life basically. And Hoyle wasn't the only scientist who believed this. Uh, Hitchens pointed out that the, 
co-discovered the DNA molecule and Nobel laureate Francis Crick even allowed himself to flirt with the theory that life was inseminated on Earth by bacteria spreading from a passing comet. And so, like, they're just, they're just willing to go to any length. You know what I mean? So here's a guy, like, Francis Crick, I, I know that name. He's no idiot. Um, yeah, but, but they're willing to posit any idea, but you're still left, as you pointed out, why is there some comet running around with uh, inseminated, uh, you know, basically, basically semen in order to inseminate the earth to grow species, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what's this comet doing uh, through the cosmos? And so there, there's, I think they're still left with uh, trying to explain that. But uh, yeah, they're willing to come up with anything for the origins of life other than, yeah, there's a creator who made it. Yeah, if, uh, if you're interested, I have this book on the ancient Near East, and it, it's just like an, an anthology of texts, and a lot of it is some of the uh, creation stories, I believe, of uh, Babylon, or it's just kind of ancient cultures, and, and at least those are kind of interesting or funny, they're, they're personal, because they give these ridiculous creation stories of how the world, you know, were spun off from some, you know, war between the gods or body parts from it, you know, but it's all this kind of fertility Im imagery. Uh, uh -huh. Actually, uh, when I was at the University of Washington, I took a class on Eastern religions. And for one of my uh, kind of final assignments, I had to go visit a place of uh, worship and uh, fr from one of these Eastern religions. So I was in Bellevue, Washington. This is where Microsoft is, if you don't know where. Uh, there's a lot of Indian people who, who work at Microsoft, and there is a Hindu temple that's just like in a business park there. And uh, I went to the website, and they have, you know, here's open visiting hours. You can come in. So I was like, okay, so this is part of my research. And it was actually really fascinating. I, I, I kind of almost encourage people to like, yeah, go, go find your local Hindu, whatever it's, it's called, Hindu temple. Uh, but it's so strange walking in there. And you have all of these shrines, and there's all this phallic imagery. The, the, there is this woman that comes out with like this bucket of what looks like milk, uh, but it's essentially an imagery of semen, and then she pours it on this big phallic symbol in the middle. And, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> like this, this is, this reminds me of what you read in the Bible, you know, the, the kind of cult fertility. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny when you look at the uh, multiverse explanation, or like you said, how the world got, uh, how the world came to be, you know, a comet with, with some, you know, semen on it basically to, to make us fertile. It's just a depersonalized version of the same creation myths yeah. that have been posited for thousands of years by people who just deny God or, do, or don't know even about the, the Christian story. Um, and, and I just think it's funny that we're still arguing about these creation myths. And it's like, they're, they're, here's a good one in Genesis, that I think actually makes sense. But yeah, no, let's, yeah. let's do the comet thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's interesting, because even you know, your basic Darwinism, like, just what a central element is to life, though, is, you know, even Darwin is basically, um, you know, propagating the species, Every, everything is kind of like, in a sense, uh, tied into into the idea of procreation in some regard. And um, yeah, and and it's interesting when you yeah consider other myths and other cosmologies that you know the I guess it's not necessarily a fancy word but origins is cosmologies and so when you seek to discuss that like everybody has has an explanation and I can't remember the guy's name I was reading a commentary on Genesis but he basically laid out um, there are three and I'm not going to be able to remember them so it's probably bad I'm bringing it up 
but uh, three ways the ancient world would basically bring about nature of reality. You had the creationist view, the Christian, but all of them, all the other ones basically did entail some sort of conflict between two things. And so uh, one yeah. God cuts another God in half and that's how you get the sky. And then uh, some, some other God comes over and has sex with someone else's wife, God that produces the uh, men and all that sort of stuff. And, and you just get all these crazy things, but, but even Darwinism is rooted in conflict. You know what I mean? It's uh, the, the, the heart of us getting here has been through a process of conflict. And so you have Christianity, which is uh, creation ex nihilo. And then from there, um, you know, the more I look at it, like I, I'm just like, I think the text tells me a six days and it's not this conflict. And um, whereas, you know, be it Darwinism or be it your other ancient Near Eastern uh, cosmologies, and I don't know Hindu cosmology, um, but yeah, it's rooted in conflict. And rather than uh, a personal being who has absolute authority and spoken into existence. And yeah, at the end of the day, like what's more reasonable uh, to me that it's reason back in the cosmos has created us, has made us to be reasonable and to reflect his image or an absolutely meaningless universe or the conflict between impersonal forces that are now giving us personalism and reason and all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, when you begin to look at the origins of life and the things they're willing to posit, um, the atheist is, you kind of realize that it's, it's almost, yeah, like you said, mythological. You know what I mean? They have a tendency to accuse us of um, being, uh, what, are they, what are they, magic. You know, oh, you guys believe in magic. But, well, your view, I would say that the idea that you've mixed some comet semen with the earth and you got human life is far more magical than a personal being uh, creating the cosmos. You know what I mean? Like, that seems a bit more magical to me uh, and kind of like an alchemist. I, yeah, I take a little bit from the comet, a little bit of that, and out pops a human being. Uh, you know, just give us three, three point four billion years or whatever it was, four point three billion years, and we can get a human being out of it. So, um, yeah, I feel like that sort of stuff it ends up being a bit more of an appeal to magic than uh, a personal being actually creating the world. Yeah, it's almost like their god of the gaps is just super lame because they they just posit this impersonal force, and and that's their that's how they kind of fill in the blanks of their system. Uh, one of the things that N.D. Wilson has done really masterfully in a talk called Myth Wars, uh, and if you look this up, this was given at the C.S. Lewis Desiring God conference a, a few years ago, and I would encourage you guys to listen to that. Uh, it's like C.S. Lewis against scientism or something, and he points out, uh, I think C.S. Lewis makes the point that uh, looking at the evolutionary myth, the evolutionary story, he wonders, okay, why is it so attractive to people? And he says, you know, there's real grandeur here because it, it makes man the champion of reality. He is the one who climbs up from the primordial mud and uh, ascends above all of the beasts. And he is the champion of reality. And, and he says, contrast that with the humility of the, the Genesis story where uh, you know, God is this great, glorious creator, and and he's high above us. So it's like, in one level, you you uh, you are God in the evolutionary story. You are the highest. Or in the creation story, you have a higher power that that gives you his dignity, his image. And we would, of course, say there's far more grandeur in the Christian story, but there is this false grandeur. That, that makes man the center instead of God the center. And I think that's the difference between humanism and all of the, their myth that goes with it, their corpus, science is their religion, uh, evolution is their creation myth, and, and then you're seeing humanism play out 
in all of you know what we're seeing right now in our, in our culture falling apart over against a God who uh, in everything can actually be coherent with uh, a personal universe, uh, objective morality, and so forth. And yeah, it's interesting because one of the, you know, I, I haven't researched it in primary resources, but a thing I hear more often than not on campus regarding evolution is that we've actually evolved to the point that we're no longer evolving. You know what I mean, kind of a convenient stop point that we've <laughs> been able to master, we've been able to master our environment. So it's no longer impersonally dictating our direction, but now we get to dictate the direction of all things. So, but in a sense, what they're kind of saying is we now have dominion. You know what I mean? For a long yeah. time, we did not have dominion. We're these byproducts of these impersonal forces and everything else. Um, but now we've been able to leap up and now have dominion. And I, I think I've mentioned this guy on the show, but the cosmic skeptic kid um, on YouTube, he was in a debate um, and he basically, it was funny because he, he basically was attacking reason. And then by the end of the debate, he's like, well, that's why we need to use reason because now we can manipulate the environment around us. You know what I mean? And so, so, so now, now this, this thing called reason, which doesn't really exist, uh, is now a faculty in man that we now have that we're able to manipulate the environment around us that we get to participate in and be transcendent in. And, um, and that's one of the things Bonson pointed out and did a good job with is that the unbelieving man is going to vacillate between the rationalism and the irrationalism. So on one breath, he's going to want to give man grandeur and everything else. But then when push comes to shove, he's going to say there's no meaning, no meaning to any of it. You know what I mean? But, but I get to provide the meaning. And that's so beautiful to me that I get to provide the meaning and stuff like that. And so uh, and whatever that meaning is, whether it contradicts my meaning or Trump's meaning or Obama's meaning or, you know, Paul Potts meaning, we all get to apply our own meaning to the world. And that's part of the grandeur and beauty of it. And, and then they get mad and irrational when someone doesn't subscribe to their ordering of the cosmos. But uh, yeah, because you, you essentially become a god. Um, and, and when another god isn't doing what you want, you get angry. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah. And, and yeah, so I think that's actually not a bad thing because then we... To some extent, uh, God's not like you and me where he's being selfishly ambitious in the same way uh, that we are. But we have an easy analogy that when we're angry at the behavior of other people, that Yahweh's angry at your behavior. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a huge leap. We all understand uh, morality and, and the immoral man. And so even though the atheist vacillates on that particular issue, um, want to say all morality is meaningless. Oh, and by the way, racism is bad. Um, they're, they're just they're kind of. They, they have that tension between being a rationalist and an irrationalist. And part of our responsibility as um, Christians and apologists and evangelists, and hopefully with some grace, because especially like right now, you just can't be like, you, you anti-racists are irrational. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll burn your building down. And so you don't just show up and go 100 miles an hour on them. But if you're able to have a discussion with them in appropriate context, um, you can kind of pull the carpet out from underneath them and show them that it's the context of Christianity that the, a black man or a white man as an image bearer of God has value and meaning, opposed to uh, you know, the idea that over 3.8 billion years, now we're somehow we're just these equals uh, that need to go along with one another. So, Yeah, it's like if you're combating racism or actually pursuing justice, do you want to be able to say, thus saith the Lord, like God, God said, there's a real God, he has an objective standard, or do you want to say, well, evolution has got us to this point but but at that point you're like we were born in conflict conflicts still here and you have to just concoct some kind of reasons that are convenient for why we are equal and if anything ev the evolutionary myth just teaches that we are not equal it's it's it is just a might makes right power myth and one of the other things i wanted to uh kind of throw out there before we close is 
the idea of like climate change and, and depopulating the earth, it, it's kind of funny. I've been trying to think about like the people who want that in many ways are, are evolutionary, uh, have this evolutionary myth. And it kind of contradicts the whole goal of evolution, which is to propagate the species. And it's like, they're, they're just basically saying at, at some point, only some of the species, you know, uh, can, can go on. Uh, the planet cannot sustain us all. And it's like, at what point do we hit that, that kind of break point where, yeah, the, the world is, can't handle us. And it is now a culture of, of death or a culture of scarcity. It's like, how do you even make the moral call? Let's say we, we, uh, if we keep, you know, producing CO2 the way we are, that the earth in 10 years is, can only have, you know, this amount of population. Well, how do you decide now who we got to kill? Uh, uh, and evolution and just can't we, get you there. <laughs> yeah, and we should have just let the Rona run wild. You know what I mean? We, we would have had yeah. a, little calling, a little calling of the population, and uh, the weak, uh, those who are not fit for survival, would have uh, just kind of bumped, bumped off. And, 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 and that's even the thing when you're on – well, when I'm on campus is, is people want to basically kind of have a utilitarian ethic, kind of like a greater good. But part of the greater good may be the calling of a population. You know what I mean? You can't rule out the idea that we eradicate everybody over the age of 65 because we're allocating resources for health and stuff like that. And, you know, their time's up. Like, what are they really contributing to society? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and so from a utility standpoint, if we're allocating resources to uh, the mentally retarded and the you know, handicapped, the old and stuff like that, um, we, we might. Again, I think it should at least be on the table if you're a utilitarian um, that it might be reasonable that we get rid of those individuals. And even even from a global warming standpoint, I, I was when I was in Arizona preaching earlier this year, it was kind of funny because the professor didn't want to have the discussion. I was I wasn't even getting into the particulars of whether or not the Earth was heating up or cooling down. I was just saying like, look, the place is heated up and cool. If you take Orthodox science, the place is heated up and cooled down several times. Uh, a handful of times. And so the idea that it's heating up again, even if we're causing it, whether it was caused in the past by an asteroid, like why the dinosaurs are gone, or whether it was caused by some volcanoes going off all, all near the same time, it's just nature doing its thing. And this idea that humans transcend nature, well, this one's man-made. Well, you're assuming now that we transcend nature. What's the difference between man doing it and a volcano doing it or an asteroid doing it? You're assuming we're fundamentally different than those things which is to get away from kind of the monism. And so, and then his professor came out, he's like, if you want real science behind this, I was like, well, I'm not arguing the science behind it. I'm giving you, I'm, I'm giving you the farm. 100% man's causing it. What I'm getting at is even if man is, this place is heated up and cooled down, what's the big deal? And according to Orthodox science, 98, 99% of all species has gone extinct. The universe doesn't care, man. You know what I mean? So like you guys can get huffy puffy that you only have 12 years to live if you're listening to some of the Democrats. We only have 12 years. Well, the universe doesn't care if we die out. Now you can care, but you know, that, that's, that's as meaningful as a, you know, a chimp carrying a rock carrying or a cockroach carrying. It doesn't, doesn't at the at bottom, it doesn't matter. And so, yeah, you have to, that's the sort of stuff that's interesting as you look at the culture and how they spend so much time on these things um, in the context of atheism or secularism and humanism. Yeah. Well, with that, we'll wrap up until next week. Keith, any updates from, from you? Uh, no real updates. I'm currently in Southern California, Los Angeles, trying to head on a swivel, trying to avoid riots and stuff like that. There's been, uh, I've gone by some things that look like they've been knocked over or burned out. Um, 
But uh, for the most part, all, all is well. I'm going to head back up to Moscow this weekend, and the Lord willing, maybe probably be there all maybe permanently, but most of the summer, crank out material and all that sort of jazz. Great. Until next time, we'll see you later. Peace. God bless. Bye.